Welcome to the Twisted Mirror. Before we stare at the mirror, a few quick notes. If you are a listener, would you consider supporting the show by leaving a review? It doesn't have to be fancy, just a sentence. You can just name your favorite episode so new people stopping by can know where to start. I am close to 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts and would really appreciate getting over the hump. Another way to support The Twisted Mirror, if you can, is through Patreon. Patrons get episodes like this multi-parter all at once. In fact, the whole story is already there. I am a one-woman show, writing, voice acting, and editing each episode, and that kind of support allows me to devote more time to making new stories. Finally, you can find Twisted Mirror on Facebook, both the page and the group, TikTok, or IG if you want to stay in touch outside of the show. Links to all of the above is at twistedmirrorpodcast.com, or you can just type in Twisted Mirror and you'll find me. This episode is a multi-parter with part two dropping on April 1st. Now... Let's go down that dark, long hallway where the mirror waits for you. Today, it wants to show you a love story for the ages. But as we all know, what happens on the other side of that mirror isn't always sunshine and roses. Love is complicated, and sometimes it makes us do the unimaginable. You are now staring into a twisted mirror. The thing about death is it is inevitable, but it isn't always fair. There is so much we can control in life, so much we can do to change our circumstances. But when death sets its sights on someone, it's a helpless feeling. We know we can do nothing to change the circumstances, but still, We think back on the what-ifs, hoping if you try hard enough, you can find some loophole the rest of mankind somehow missed and prevent a past that had already been determined. But what would you do if you found it? Most of us would bring back the ones we lost in an instant. It seems like a no-brainer. Nothing is free, however. Today's episode asks the question, what cost would you be willing to pay to bring someone back? I had loved him for as long as I knew him. I had known him since I was nine years old. My parents had moved us across the country in the middle of a school year, from warm and sunny Arizona to dreary and frigid Wisconsin. I was angry and nervous as we pulled up to our new house. I already missed my friends, and the muddy earth and colorless skies reflected emotions I was still too young to articulate. I stood on the front lawn, stubbornly moping while my little sister Tabitha napped inside the new house on a pile of moving blankets. I disturbed the dormant grass with a stick, kicking around clumps of dirty slush as adults shuffled around me. At some point, I looked up. I can't remember why. Maybe I felt him 
and looked at an upstairs window at the house next door. My eyes registered the boy, his big brown eyes, so bright I could make them out from down there, looking down at me. We stared at each other for a few seconds and he waved. I awkwardly twirled the stick around, my legs crossing and fidgeting as I gave him a single, shy wave back. Angelina! My mother called from inside. Lunch! I ran inside and didn't see him again until a couple of days later, my first day at the new school. The elementary school nightmare every new kid fears had come true. I sat alone in the lunchroom. The kids weren't particularly mean, but I was shy and didn't dare insert myself into the well-oiled cogs of the mid-school year social scene. Hey, a voice said from above as I picked up my sandwich, plain turkey and bread with the crust cut off, no cheese, no mayo. I looked up and recognized his eyes immediately. For the first time, I got a clear view of his face, his dark mess of hair, his kind smile. He slid his lunch bag onto the table. I'm Danny. He brought an extra Swiss roll for me, he told me years later. That when he had seen me outside that first day, he had instantly fallen in love. And it was the only way he knew how to tell me. He didn't know it at the time, but I had too. What do you mean you aren't sure? Danny asked as he unlocked the front door to our apartment and I flipped on the lights. The argument started over something silly at a Christmas party. Some girl had flirted with him and I made a comment about how I bet if I wasn't around, he'd have gone home with her that night. He took offense. We both had a couple of drinks in us, though we weren't drunk by any means. It was just enough for our lips to get loose, to say things we otherwise would have just left as unspoken doubts. Never mind. No, clearly this whole thing is about something you want to say. That's the problem with knowing someone for practically your entire life. They know every trick in your book. My chest clenched. My heart swelled and felt as if it were growing into my throat, trying to stop me from saying the things I had been thinking. I knew I was being a fool. Danny stood there waiting, and I knew this time I wasn't going to get away with changing the subject. I cleared my throat and took a deep breath. It's just... Don't you ever wonder? His face changed in a way that might be imperceptible to most, but the slight droop of the tiny muscles around his eyes and mouth told he was hiding hurt feelings. Just that, you know, we've been together our whole lives. We've never even kissed another person. Well, you have. Danny rolled his eyes. I would never let him live down kissing Jennifer Shepard in the sixth grade during Truth or Dare. We have done everything together, and I'm just worried that we haven't ever known a life without each other. That girl that hit on him at the party was pretty, really pretty. Danny was hot, and I knew at work 
he'd had to dodge young, ambitious women from asking him out before. It wasn't just his looks, but his sweet nature, and ironically, his loyalty, that made him irresistible. I'm certain they wondered what was so special about me, that he, a successful young man, had chosen to commit his entire life, past and future. He never really made a big deal about it, but any time it came up, a little voice would whisper inside of me that our relationship and his childhood commitment to me was holding him back from living his full potential. And you're worried about this now? Two months before the wedding? He asked. You can't honestly tell me that if I wasn't in the picture, you wouldn't have pursued her. I don't know. I, I just... I don't want you to regret this. Is it that you don't want me to regret this? Or are you afraid you will? No, yes, uh, both, I guess. That assumption is insulting and not fair. Not in the picture? What does that even mean? You are so, I, I've never even thought about. He grew flustered and clenched at his scalp, drawing a ragged breath to start over. His muscles, rigid with stress, collapsed back to their normal posture. He put each hand on my shoulder and looked me in the eyes. Slim, he said tenderly, the nickname he made for me that very first day at the lunch table. I'm sure, I promise you, I am. But are you? I hesitated. Those few extra seconds, an infinitesimal fraction of the time we had shared together, would change the entire course of my life. I should have stopped him from leaving, begged him to stay, but I didn't. I froze. He told me he was going for a drive to clear his head. He said he wasn't angry, but he wasn't expecting this and just needed to collect his thoughts. And I let him have his space, told him I didn't want to lose him, but I was scared. I should have said that I loved him still with all of my heart and I couldn't imagine a future that he wasn't part of. That these were my insecurities I was projecting onto him. I sat there for hours, worried I had made the biggest mistake of my life. That he would come back and tell me I was right. That he had missed out on so much because he had just gotten comfortable and time had pressed on. That before he knew it, he was 27 and had been with the same girl his entire life. And that we should take a pause on all this. He would say that because I brought it up, I wanted my freedom from him and he was letting me go. As each hour went by, I was more certain this was the inevitable conclusion. Why else would he be gone for so long? As the wedding came closer, I had gotten it into my head that he would someday resent me for not letting him sow his oats. Certainly, I had those thoughts about myself, too. But I had done the calculus and knew I was in the fortunate, and maybe to some, 
unfortunate position of meeting the love of my life on the first try. I was willing to pass up on many of the things that came with that. Yet, I had felt it was selfish of me to expect that of him. So much of our lives were intertwined beyond our love for each other. The bakery he had helped me fund, spending his spare time outside of his busy job as a budding architect to help me renovate, had as much of his soul in it as mine. Our families that had grown close over the years around what was at first a close friendship, and then adolescent puppy love, and then more. We never had to go through the awkward phase of meeting the parents, as we had already considered each other's parents as second families. These were things one couldn't simply walk away from. These things that were glue, solidifying a nearly lifelong bond, could also be shackles. Without fully realizing it, I had given him a test that night, a get-out-of-jail-free card to see if he would take it. If he came back to me, it would be us, past, present, and our entire futures. What a fool I was to even doubt Danny. Sweet Danny. The boy who has only ever loved me. I texted him at 2 a.m. I love you. I'm sorry. Please come home. The doorbell rang. I glanced at the clock. 2.32 a.m. Danny wouldn't knock. He had the keys. Who else would be here at this ungodly hour? I slowly walked to the front door and peeped through the peephole. On the other side were two uniformed men. A heavy sensation of absolute dread engulfed me. Thick and dark as tar, so that I could barely lift my trembling hand to turn the knob. One of them took off his hat. I don't remember many details after that. I went into a state of suspended animation when Danny died. In fact, I locked myself in that very moment. I let him leave. It was an earthly purgatory. A time and space between when I had him and when I lost him. Danny skidded off the road and hit that tree at 1.37 a.m. He never saw my text. He died thinking I wanted to end our engagement. I lay in bed for weeks, reliving those events, thinking of all the ways I could have stopped him. Instead, I drove him to his death. His last moments on this earth were full of hurt that I inflicted. 
Since the moment the police showed up at my door, my body ached relentlessly from the inside out with no relief. And I was okay with that. It was my punishment for killing him. It was tragically ironic. I was so afraid I would lose him that I did forever. I have felt grief before. I had lost loved ones. But this, this was not the same. I loved him the most. I would have always loved him the most. It's cliche to say that when someone you love dies, a part of you does too. But it's different when the very person who would define your future also defined your entire past. I couldn't really remember my life before Danny. I wasn't even a whole person before I knew him. Just a shy little girl. He was the very mortar between the bricks that would build the woman I would become. He was my first everything and was supposed to be my last. He was as much a part of my identity as I was. My days became gray and each blurred into the next with no true beginning or end. They were an infinite loop. Wake up. Be disappointed I didn't die. Force myself to sleep some more. Crawl out of bed. Walk down the street to the bakery we used to own that I had sold after he died because even baking didn't bring me joy anymore. Force myself to eat a few bites. Go back to sleep cry again if I had any tears. Shower. Sometimes cry in there too. Ignore calls from my sister or mother checking in. Eat dinner. Most likely not. Go into Danny's closet and hug his clothes. Then sometimes sleep huddled on the floor of his closet or on the couch with one of his shirts. I couldn't sleep in our bed anymore repeat. It had gone on like this for months with no end in sight. I was fortunate in some ways. When Danny's grandfather died a few years earlier, he had left him an inheritance. Danny and I had been careful in planning our future, and his will made sure that the inheritance and anything else he owned would go to me if he died. We had also taken out life insurance policies in preparation for our marriage. I stupidly tried to go back to work at the bakery shortly after Danny's funeral. But I began to cry in the back room an hour into my day back, left, and decided to sell it. There was no way I could keep working on a dream that we had built together. Danny helped me start that business, financed it with some of his inheritance, rolled up his sleeves and helped me renovate. With his skills in architecture, we had built something timeless. That was a conscious decision because we had assumed we'd grow old together and watch the years go by. When Danny died, 
so did my dreams of owning a bakery. It became a mausoleum for my future. Nonetheless, the investments into the bakery had paid off, and I had a little chunk of change from the sale. I wouldn't have to work for a very long time, and that allowed me to pause my life. I didn't have to force myself into my new future. I could remain suspended in the moment when Danny died. Forever. I could torture myself. Forever. I know it doesn't make sense wanting to live in endless misery, but at least that made me feel close to him in some way. To feel anything other than mourning felt like I was making his death meaningless. Those images of his last moments I had created in my head haunted me, awake or asleep. I was assured his death was instant, painless. But still, I imagined the moment his car slammed into that tree many times throughout the day. The pieces of shattered glass breaking through his skin like shrapnel. The airbag slamming against his face. The dashboard and steering column caving into his chest. I, I didn't actually know. Every time I insisted on the details, I was coaxed like a child that wanted to know things they could not yet handle. Fragile Angelina. I wasn't always like this. So brittle. They thought they were helping, but that only pushed me to fill in the blanks. The intrusive thoughts becoming a daily punishment for driving Danny away. The images flashed behind my open eyes. When I closed them, they played in the darkness. There is no escaping a living nightmare. There is nowhere to go when your sleeping terrors and your waking terrors are the same. As much as our families were here for me, their lives had to go on, and I had plenty of alone time. That independence, along with the constant images in my head recreating Danny's death, led me to eventually order a copy of the autopsy and police report. I felt I owed it to Danny to read it, to be with him in his last moments in some abstract way, to know exactly how he died. On the day I filed the request for the autopsy, my mother and sister left a voicemail saying that they were on their way. I didn't want to face them. My place smelled stale, like no one had lived in it for months, which was the truth in some ways. Clothes littered the floor, dust bunnies populated almost every corner, Breathing and existing alone was too much effort. I couldn't be bothered with dishes or the laundry that had spilled over into the bathroom and bedroom floor. I understood they were trying to help, but their idea of help was to try and get me to move on, get out of the house with them. And those were all things I didn't want. I wanted 
to stew in the pain. All they did was get in the way. It hurt to go out into the world, to see people going about their business as if nothing had changed. The sounds of chatting and clamoring felt like jackhammers running nonstop in my head. It felt like a betrayal to Danny that I should get to laugh or taste sweetness or feel the sun kiss my skin. I wanted solitude. I wanted pain. Because at least then, I couldn't forget him. I didn't want pity. I didn't want to get better. I was okay living like this. I didn't deserve to move on. I knew even if I had the guts to tell my mother and Tabitha that I didn't want them here, they would still come. It was mandatory in their eyes. They loved me and their familial obligation demanded it. So I pulled on an overcoat over the t-shirt and sweatpants that had become my uniform, slipped on a pair of ratty Uggs, and left our apartment. I would lie and tell them I was out running errands when they stopped by and I had missed their call. It was a win-win. I wouldn't have to deal with their faces of sympathy, and they would think I had turned a corner and was starting to engage with the world again. The day was dreary, though now I wonder if it truly was, as every day seemed gloomy now. It was maybe 50 degrees and despite the layers of clothing, my teeth chattered. I was always slender, and since eating had ceased to be a priority, I had gotten frighteningly thin, meaning I was always cold. At least it gave me an excuse to wear Danny's sweatshirts at home. Whenever I did manage to force myself to go on an outing, I walked aimlessly through the streets with earphones in, a signal to the world that I was not a participant and a way to soften the inevitable sensory overload. I listened to the same playlist every day, designed to elicit memories of him. Just another ingredient in the misery soup in which Danny's absence was the main ingredient. I chose tunes that would complement the melancholy, like the notes of a fine wine complement a meal. I'd hunt for new songs that ignited the pain centers of my brain and heart and expanded the list when a worthy song was found. I cultivated that list like a garden of tears and sorrow. Six months had passed and it still felt like day one. They say time makes it better. I thought to myself, there isn't enough time in the world. The world had not only lost its color, but its shape and its sounds. Every storefront was the same blur of letters, voices all the same garbled background noise. I walked with no destination, one foot pacing ahead of the other, my direction at the whim of whatever crosswalk sign glowed with a walking yellow figure. There were times I would come to in a brief moment of clarity with no idea how I had ended up where I stood. There were times I thought I had only walked for a few minutes, 
then realized I was 30 blocks from home. Other times, I felt as if I'd been walking for hours, only to look up and realize I had been standing in the same spot, lost in thought, only a few minutes from our apartment. This was one of those typical aimless days when the city was all one muted blob. This time, though, something slipped through the muddy mix of sights and sounds. Something I had walked and driven by even before I lost Danny, and until that moment had never slipped into the foreground of my attention. Now that everything else had melted away, it stood bright and true, clearer than anything I had seen in months. The glowing pink neon sign with a flickering H that read, Psychic. I was never one for that kind of shit. I guess that's why even though I knew it was there, in the same way I know where everything is in my neighborhood, it was an irrelevant fixture, like a tree or bench or one of those storefronts that you never quite understand its purpose, yet seems to stay afloat. I used to wonder to myself, as a person who owned her own business, how that one had stayed there all these years. The little parking lot in front of it was always empty, and I had never noticed signs of life nearby. Without hesitation, I walked towards the glowing letters, like a signal flare for a lost soul. All I had was time to kill, and a small part of me wished for something, though I wasn't sure what that was. I pushed open the glass door. A jingle of bells alerted someone of my arrival. A few seconds later, a woman came out from behind a wall of beaded curtains. She seemed to be in her sixties. Her skin was saggy and lined. A few errant silver hairs glimmered against her dark mane like a flicker of moonlight against a black sea. I knew that her pale skin, green eyes, and raven hair once brought young men to their knees. But now, she looked perpetually vexed by the world, as if the years had worn away any sort of disillusionment that life was meant to be enjoyed. In some ways, she looked as I had expected a psychic to look. Her dark hair was pulled back and wrapped with a jewel-toned scarf, a fringed shawl wrapped around her shoulders. Her fingers were encircled by chunky rings. In other ways, she did not. She wore a pair of mom jeans and white Nikes. The main room itself was simple a wooden table with two chairs, open shelving with knickknacks and bottles of fluid that were probably used to conjure up spirits. Incense burned. The neon lights cast a pastel glow in the dim room. She looked me up and down with her penetrating, verdant eyes and read me as if I had my story transcribed all over my body. Sit, she commanded. Wow. I must really look like shit, I thought to myself. She walked to the main door and turned the lock. She noticed the concern on my face. One person at a time, 
she assured me, drawing some thin curtains that still allowed for the flickering of the neon sign to light the room. She sat across the table from me and slid her two hands, palms up, towards me. The rings on her fingers made a scraping sound along the table as she nudged her chin toward her hands, a silent order. I waited a few seconds, but her eyes stayed fixed on mine, unflappable. I placed my hands in hers and she closed her eyes. Don't you want to shh, she scolded. Back to complete silence I went as she meditated or whatever. I thought this must be the production she puts on for everyone, but I didn't care enough to do anything but look around the room uncomfortably. It had been a while since I had let anyone touch me. Oddly, this was the most physically intimate experience I had had since Danny's funeral, when I endured the hugs I didn't deserve. I stifled a chuckle knowing this would be the last place he'd ever expect me to be. That even if she summoned him, he'd ask me what the hell I was doing here. She pulled her hands away. When I looked into her eyes, they were red and tired in a way they hadn't been before. Tell me about him, she said, her faintly wrinkled skin cast with a flickering pink hue. I wanted to say something smart-ass like, aren't you a psychic? You tell me. But I felt an unexpected warmth and comfort in being able to speak with someone who was anonymous, who didn't know the vibrant person I was before Danny left me, and wouldn't sit there feeling pity for the person I once was. So I did. I told her about the way we met, the life we had shared, the fight, the way he died and how we left off, how the message on his phone would never be read, how we'd never marry and grow old together, and how he thought that wasn't what I wanted. She listened intently and didn't do the things I expected of a psychic to use clues to impress me with educated guesses. She just listened. Finally, when I was done, she sat there. I could see she was thinking hard about something. A minute or two passed before I couldn't contain my curiosity any longer. What is it? I asked. I think I have something for you, if you want it. Well, what is it? I cannot tell you. I can only show you. I'll admit she had me. I knew all the sales tactics she was using, and I didn't care. This was the first time I had felt curious about anything in a long time. I wanted to do anything to feel closer to Danny, even if it was a farce. I'll do it. There are consequences to anything you do. I scoffed at her dramatics. I think I understand that as much as anyone. She nodded in a way that told me she had made her decision and stood up. She went to the back room and came back with an ornately carved box, inlaid with gold. Before we begin, this will cost $3,000. I feel stupid even admitting this. And the old me would have never thought me capable of such stupidity, but I didn't hesitate. What else did I have to spend my money on?
Do you take cards, I asked. She nodded and pulled out her phone with a card reader. It was almost comical, the sliding of the credit card and collecting of my email to access the mystical resources this woman somehow endowed. I had a moment, just before she ran the card, a feeling I should stop this. She was taking advantage of a woman in a deep mourning. Instead, I watched as the circle spun on her screen, followed by approved, and with that, my hesitation cleared. She tucked her phone away and opened the box. Inside were brown papers scrawled with scribbles in an unfamiliar alphabet, tiny jars holding dried herbs and all the random stuff you'd expect some medium or psychic to have. It was unabashedly cliche, and I didn't even care that she was stealing my money right in front of me. She selected bits of things from the boxes and bundles and combined them into a mortar, grinding them with a pestle. I need something important from him, she announced, looking up at me, the pink light reflecting off of her glimmering green eyes. I panicked for a moment. I was practically in my PJs and didn't bring much, but then I remembered the ring on my finger. The bright red ruby he had proposed with. It was on my middle finger as it had gotten too big. Its new placement was a fitting symbol of how I felt about the fairness of the world. I slid it off and handed it to her. She lit a match and touched it to the powder and the mortar which slowly filled the air around the table with a spicy, earthy aroma. Close your eyes, and whatever you do, do not open them, she ordered, not once. I complied. Think of a place where you two spend time together alone, but do not tell me. I did. I heard the clink of metal and realized that she had thrown the ring into the bowl. I tried to peek and she literally hissed at me, causing me to jump in my seat and clamp my eyes shut like a scolded child. Then, I felt something. I really did. At first, I thought it could have been the thrill of something to look forward to. Even if just for a few minutes. Then I realized... Something real was happening. I heard her shuffle the papers and she began to murmur, like a quiet prayer. She wasn't speaking English, but her voice was too low and fast for me to guess what language it could be. As her murmuring sped up, she gripped my hands again so tightly, I could feel the ridgy bones of her knuckles pressed against my fingers. The smoky smell in the room began to change, and the hairs on my arms and neck stood as I smelled something different, but familiar. It took me a while to place it because as hard as I tried, as many times as I dug into his closet, I couldn't find it any longer. I smelled Danny. Do you smell him? I asked, near frantic. She didn't answer, just pressed down on my hands, just on the edge of pain to shut me up. Please be here, 
I silently begged as a tear rolled down my cheek. She stopped whatever she was saying and released my hand. You can open your eyes. When I did, the room was unchanged and, of course, Danny wasn't there. I looked into the bowl and all the ingredients she had put in were gone. Not even ash remained. And the ring? It was sitting in the middle of the bowl, unharmed by the flames. What was that, I asked. Is there more? Is that it? I would pay $3,000 every week to feel his presence again, even if it was only seconds at a time. Her smile conveyed pity. No, my dear, but there can be more, much more. She shifted a bit, showing the first sign of discomfort I had seen in her since entering her shop. I have done this for years, but this is not something I take lightly. I have only done it once before, very long ago. She measured me with her eyes, before you were even born. He was like you, the man who walked in here. I could feel his pain before he walked through the door. It is rare to see someone who truly deserves another chance. I felt exposed, but also validated. Of the many people who must have come here to seek some resolution to their pain, mine was among the greatest. It will cost you more. What happened here was just a taste. Though, I must be clear. I cannot tell you what it is, and it is for the universe to ordain. I make no guarantees. I can only tell you how to find it. What happened to the man? I asked. I can only perform the incantation one person at a time. That means he has moved on or no longer needs it. I hope you also never need to seek me out again, and this will provide the closure you need. I'll pay it, I replied as I scrambled into my purse for my wallet. Shit, I whispered under my breath. My card has a daily spending limit, but, but I can write you a check. I wrote out the embarrassingly large check with an unhinged ferocity that required a few tries to make it legible. I slid the check halfway across the table. Now what's next? She placed her fingers on the check and slid it over the rest of the way to her end, giving it a discreet glance. I'm good for it. I know. She locked eyes with me again. You must go to the place I asked you to think of during the ceremony. And you must do so at the exact time he died. Do not tell me or anyone where that is. Ever. This is important. It will not work if you do. I asked her what would happen. But she again insisted she could not tell me. That I would have to see for myself. I asked her what would happen if it didn't work. A do-over? Buyer's remorse began to creep in. She looked firmly into my eyes and repeated deliberately, Follow the instructions. She walked me to the door and twirled the lock open. That is one final thing you must know. I mentioned that there are consequences, 
but I must again because this is important. She waited for my reply, to punctuate the importance of what she was going to say next. Yes, the universe requires balance. Remember this. Anything you do that disturbs it, it will find a way to reset. This is why people die, my dear, so that other life can emerge. This is why the death of the physical body is permanent. I thought she was trying to manage expectations in the event I expected to see Danny in the flesh. I understood the circle of life. Of course we all die. But Danny didn't need to die. Not at 27. Not like that. That wasn't balance. That was cruelty. Of course, I understood that even when I felt him at the table, it wasn't a resurrection. But whatever it was, it was more than what I had now. I acknowledged her warning and stepped out of the shop to trudge back home. As I slid the key into my door, Robert, my neighbor's dog, scooted out of their apartment and nibbled at my feet. Come here, Robert. Ms. Dubrow called out to the little guy. She walked over and scooped him up. We went through the pleasantries of small talk and she handed me a loaf of banana bread she had just baked. Ms. Dubrow had kept a distant eye on me throughout all this, and I appreciated her subtle way of making sure I at least didn't become a complete recluse. I politely cut the conversation short with a white lie, desperate to return to my place to absorb the events of the afternoon. My apartment was cleaned with open windows, letting in fresh air. I ran over to each one and slammed them shut. My mom and sister didn't understand that I never felt warm anymore. My fridge was newly full of prepared food I would let rot. They used their spare keys to do this whenever they've stopped by and I wasn't home. I sensed they knew I sometimes avoided them, but they never brought it up. Things felt a tiny bit different already. For the first time in months, I was looking forward and not back, even if just for a few hours. The passage of time actually inspired me instead of taking me farther away from Danny. I wasn't sure how I would handle the disappointment if this all turned out to be a ruse. But I was convinced something special happened in that room. So I made a cup of tea and sat in front of the clock, waiting for the night to come. It was snowing when I arrived at the scenic bridge deep inside of the park where we used to go for our late night runs or summer afternoon walks. Not a soul was in sight, and despite it being a nice neighborhood, being there alone that late was an unsafe proposition. I felt no fear, though, and if someone wanted to kill me, I'd probably welcome the release from my slog of a life. I leaned against the railing and looked over at the small brook underneath the bridge. Jumping wouldn't kill me, but it was common for me to imagine doing so anytime I saw an opportunity. Most of the park in the distance was pitch black, but the bridge was dimly illuminated by evenly appointed lamps. I clenched my phone tight, watching as each minute trudged in a way that made me certain time was a manipulative asshole. 
Finally, it moved on as it always does. And the six on the end of the one and three turned to a seven. My heart gyrated in my chest so erratically, I grew queasy. The same eerie silence that always accompanies a late-night snowfall persisted. And there I was, still alone. I scoffed to myself. Another one bites the dust, I thought, wondering how many suckers had fallen for that psychic's production and if there was still time to cancel the check. I snickered. My whole life had become a tragic joke with no punchline. Then the humor turned to endless sadness, realizing that this was, in fact, it. I would have nothing to look forward to. I would go back to the way things had been, with possibly even less hope than I had before I met that thieving psychic. I hadn't smelled Danny. It was just my mind playing tricks on me, and now that I knew this, I couldn't even go back to the swindler for that measly reprieve. Hey, Slim. I heard from a ways behind me. My heart skittered, and I dropped my phone in a puff of snow. I whipped my head toward the voice. He was standing directly under the light of one of the lamps. The stream cast shadows on his face as he stood in the glittery snowfall. I blinked a few times, disbelieving my own eyes. But he was still there. Annie? I moved my lips, but my voice barely escaped through my quivering throat. He walked toward me, calmly, as if we had seen each other minutes ago, not like he had just been resurrected from death itself. I started to walk toward him, too, mirroring his pace, a mix of shock and uncertainty numbing my legs. As we neared, he became more real. The details of his face became sharper. He somehow seemed to grow more solid, like I could reach out and grab him, not like the apparition I had convinced myself he was under the foggy glow of the lamp. My presence of mind resurfaced and sensation flowed back to my legs. As my footing returned, I began to jog and then I sprinted as Danny opened his arms. I leapt into them and wrapped my legs around him as he lifted me off the ground. He was here and he was real. He was so fucking real. My body heaved in his arms as I sobbed into his warm neck. I clenched him as tight as I could. I would never let go. Never. The psychic was right. What I had earlier was just a taste. Why did you die? I cried into his neck as if he had a choice, as though any reason could take the pain away. I missed you so much. I missed you. I missed you. I repeated over and over. He ran his hand through my hair and I grew self-conscious. I didn't really expect to see him and I was in my uniform of oversized clothes 
Uggs, and a drab overcoat. He drew his head back to look me in the eyes. You're so light, Slim. You haven't been eating. I know. You need to take better care of yourself. I put my feet back on the ground, but didn't let go of him. I was afraid I'd lose him again if I did. I'm so sorry about what I said. I would have married you a hundred times. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. You were the best person. I loved you so much. So much. He pulled me into a tight embrace and whispered soothingly in my ear. I know. There was a serenity in his tone that leveled my frantic emotion. It calmed me a bit so that I could sneak in some breaths through my shuddering, clenched chest. It's just different for me now. I can't explain it, but there's no limit to how I experience you. It all just is. So, I'm always with you now. I know you can't see that or feel it, but I've always been here. I miss you so much. I cried. I wanted to say more. Wished I had a beautiful soliloquy prepared for him, but I could only repeat those simple words. The snow landed on his long lashes. I always envied them. He brushed my hair out of my face and ran his thumb along my hollow cheekbones. He kissed my sunken eyelids. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I said what I said and, and then you left. It's my fault you left that night. Every day, I wish it had been me instead of you. My voice trailed off as emotion took over. He gently quieted me. There's nothing to forgive. I know everything. His response puzzled me. What do you mean? Let me show you. Danny leaned in and kissed my tear-soaked lips. When I opened my eyes, we were at the top of a bluff, speckled by pure white houses capped with bright blue shutters and awnings. Santorini, Greece. This was our honeymoon. I didn't just see it. I was there. And we ate and fucked and hiked and sailed. I felt and saw every moment of those two weeks. I lived it in real time. Then I opened my eyes and I was back on the bridge, pulling away from his kiss as the steam of our breaths rose in the space between our faces. The contrast in time and space took my breath away and I stood there, staring blankly into his smiling eyes, stunned. Do you see now, Slim? There is no end. I know what would have happened because it did. It does. And it will. I took a step back, still holding his hands to make sure he wouldn't disappear. I hadn't felt alive like that since Danny had died. What I had just experienced wasn't a simulation or a dream. 
It was as real as our first kiss or when he proposed to me. I had just lived a part of our lives that I thought was forever lost. The Danny in front of me wasn't a ghost. He was here. He lifted me off the ground. The snow melted on his skin. His footprints trailed behind him in the previously unmarred snow. All of this was real. Never for a second did I doubt it. Never did I think I was losing my mind. I was afraid to ask what was next. Losing him again after a taste of our life together would be just as bad as it was the first time around. There was so much more time I wanted to share with him. There was so much more left to do. I should go, he said. What? No, I protested. You aren't going to leave me again. This isn't enough, I cried. This isn't goodbye. I'll be here when you need me. I need you now, I sobbed. We can't abuse this. What is this? What is happening? How are you here? I don't know. I just am. And just like I know this, I know we need to take our time. I can't lose you again. I can't do this all over again. He took both of my hands and held them up to his lips. You will never lose me, he declared with a conviction that almost bordered on anger. You promise you'll be back? I promise. Just do what you did today. But I need you to promise me something. I nodded. I need you to live. I need you to eat and to call your mother and sister. You need to go outside every day and smell fresh air. The last thing I want is for you to suffer. Please don't blame yourself. What happened wasn't your fault. You couldn't have stopped it. I chose to walk out that door. So I promised him I wouldn't blame myself even though I still did. He kissed my forehead and I closed my eyes and when I opened them, he was gone. I collapsed onto the snow and wept. I trusted his word he would be back, but how could I truly believe I would get more than one visit from my dead fiancé? That morning... As I snuck back to my apartment, floating in a heady daze of shock and glee, I heard a hacking cough as I walked past Ms. Dubrow's door. It was hollow and grating as she gasped for air. The sound of her wheezing permeated through her front door. At her age, such a cough was cause for concern. I knocked on her door first gently and then harder when I realized she couldn't even hear me over the sounds of her own violent fit. 
Eventually, she peeked through a cracked door, hunched over, a balled-up tissue held close to her face. Hi, Miss Dubrow, I didn't mean to disturb you, but are you okay? She nodded, catching her breath long enough to warn me I should stay away. She had an appointment tomorrow, but her doctor was concerned she might have whooping cough, which meant she could be contagious. It sounds a lot <laughs> worse than it is, she assured me, though she coughed several times trying to get the sentence out. Knowing my own immune system was probably not in fighting shape, I heeded her advice but told her I was only a call away if she needed me. It was strange, I thought, as when I had seen her the day before, she seemed in perfect health. This time, when I got into my apartment, I didn't go into the closet to smell Danny's clothes. Instead, I went to the fridge and looked through the piles of Tupperware left behind for me. I had made a promise to Danny. My mother had stocked the fridge with her greatest hits, and for the first time since he died, I could taste again. On the second night, I dressed up for the first time since his funeral, after getting my first haircut since his death. On my way out, I left some soup in front of Ms. Dubrow's door and texted her about it in order to maintain the quarantine she requested. She was one of those elderly folks who impressively fought against being a complete Luddite. I was possibly even more nervous this time around as I waited for Danny to appear. The first night, I didn't know what to expect and his absence was an excruciating baseline. But this time, I had something to lose all over again and perhaps be left with more questions than answers. I stared at the lamppost under which he appeared, never daring to take my eyes off of it. I wanted to watch him appear. Maybe it would provide a clue as to how to find him whenever I needed to. Of course, within a blink, he was not there, and then there he was. Even though my clothes sagged, I felt beautiful again when Danny's eyes lit up at the sight of me. You look good. Happy, he said lovingly. It's because you're back, I responded with a coy smirk before leaping into his arms again. This time, we didn't waste a second. He kissed me and brought me back to that night, the night he left and never came back. However, as the clock struck 2.32, the doorbell didn't ring with news of his accident. Instead, his keys jingled in the lock. I stood up and waited for him as he came in the door. I'm sorry, I blurted before he could even fully walk into the house. He looked me in the eyes. I could tell he had cried at some point. Please forgive me, I begged. I didn't know what I was thinking. I didn't mean any of it. He sighed and all the tension in his body seemed to dissolve into the air around him. I love you, Slim. I have no doubts. My heart felt as if it would rip a hole through my chest. But I think we should take a break. Not because I don't want to marry you. Not because I'm not sure. But because I don't want to marry someone who isn't. I panicked. I begged. 
I apologized. I swore to him that it was a dumb mistake. It didn't matter. I had opened Danny's eyes to something. A tiny mustard seed of doubt. I understood why he was doing what he was doing, but I wanted to erase it all. He packed his bags and told me he would be staying with his brother for a while. As the door closed behind him, I opened my eyes, gasping for air. This was not the reunion I had imagined would happen if he had made it home alive, and it sent me reeling all over again. Was I clinging onto a delusion? Danny gripped the sides of my arms as I tried to get my bearings. The bridge, the cold air, the beams of gentle light from curvy wrought iron street lamps. I was back at the bridge again. You left. You left, I echoed. But we had our honeymoon, didn't we? You showed me that. We lived that. I insisted, holding him to an implied promise. Danny calmed me. Come back to me tomorrow. I want to show you everything. Don't worry and just keep your promise to me. I wanted it all. Right there. I even snapped at him. But I realized there was something to come back to. That meant I would see him for another day. Every extra day with Danny was a blessing. So I agreed to come back. Of course I did. The next day was filled with nervous, jittery energy. It was like closing a riveting book on a cliffhanger and waiting all day to get back to it. I could hardly pay any attention to any TV show or book. I actually took to exercising for the first time in months, just to give the unsettled feeling an outlet. Danny showed up like he promised. He took me back to the moment we left with a kiss. And this time it was weeks of being pathetic. The embarrassing calls to friends and family about the wedding being off. Finally going on a date with someone else. Oof, I was rusty. Then another date. They only served as awful reminders of how lucky I was to have had Danny. At best, some guys were pleasant. But nothing close to the devotion and comfort we shared. I used to joke to Danny that he was like my favorite pair of jeans. That perfect, irreplaceable fit. Not to trivialize things, but in many ways that analogy carried on after the breakup. Dating around was like trying to find another pair after your favorite was threadbare or discontinued. Some were a disaster and even made you feel worse about yourself. Some buttoned up just fine, but nothing slid on and conformed to every part of you the way that favored pair did. Was it fair, I thought, to expect anyone to live up to someone I had loved my whole life? Perhaps it wasn't, but that measuring stick was the only tool I had. On a windswept late autumn afternoon, I was out on a date with a guy I had been seeing for a few weeks. He was sweet enough and cute and expressed that he wanted to move things to another level. But I wasn't ready to take a new relationship seriously. Danny and I didn't talk much since he had left months before. Staying in regular contact seemed to defeat the point of whatever this was. It hurt like hell. 
not only losing my lover, but my best friend since elementary school. At that point, though, I had learned to start living with the mistake I had made. There was a dull, persistent ache in the background at all times, but I was slowly building a new life over it because I had no other choice. The new guy and I were at a farmer's market and that's when I saw Danny with a girl. She was tiny, pretty with a honey brown ponytail that ran halfway down her back. She looked sporty, as did he. Maybe they now went to spin class together or ran our old secret path at the park. My heart throbbed at the thought. I froze in shock, watching as she picked up a bar of artisan soap and smelled it, offering it up to his nose. He sniffed it and nodded in approval. That's when he looked up, saw me, and turned pale as plaster. She noticed and looked over, her long, shiny ponytail flopping over her shoulder. My guy came up behind me to ask me something about spices. I stammered as my brain seemed to short-circuit at the sight of Danny. After a delay, I responded with a distracted yes, though I honestly had no idea what he had asked me. You okay? he asked, sensing my mind was elsewhere. I turned to assure him and then casually glanced back to see what became of Danny. He was gone from where I had last spotted him, but I quickly saw he was halfway towards us and my heart jittered as I tried to gather myself. Hey, he said, his voice towing the thick line between eagerness and nonchalance. Hi, I answered doing everything in my power not to convey that my stomach felt like it was hosting a miniature whirling dervishes convention. It felt so phony to stand there and act like polite adults, to pretend like we didn't have a history that the two of these people couldn't possibly comprehend, to pretend that we didn't know every quirk, pet peeve, funny story, painful memory, awkward moment and joy the other had known. To pretend there wasn't an endless list of things we needed to say. But we couldn't. It would be cruel to the people we were with. And of course, when you've known someone your whole life, you don't need to say much. I could read his emotions scrawled all over his face in our secret language. I could feel him. She's not you. I love you. I miss you. I don't want to do this. And he could read mine. He's just some guy. I regret it all. I want to marry you. Please come home. Yet our words when we faced each other... At the farmer's market, they were stilted and formal. We navigated introducing our dates with language designed to soften the awkward reality of the encounter. Terms like childhood friend and neighbor were tossed around. We downplayed the run-in as if we were just acquaintances or friends who had drifted apart. We tried not to look into each other's eyes for more than a second because we feared it would all burst out like a dam 
our secret, that we loved each other. Madly, still, we went our opposite ways. I tried to hide how shaken I was as I pointed out some spices we should pick up to make dinner. When my date wasn't looking, I stole a glance over my shoulder and saw Danny leaving with his person. He sneaked a look back and we exchanged a brief, melancholic smile. I was back at the bridge. My insides fluttered with mixed emotions, but this time things ended with a flicker of hope. We're going to get back together, aren't we? Danny wouldn't answer. He never liked to give things away. The next evening, when I left my apartment to see Danny, I noticed there was a mild, unpleasant odor lofting in the hallway. Our building was well-maintained, but old, and it wasn't unheard of for a rodent to die in some hidden spot, only to give away its location as the tiny corpse decomposed. I made a mental note to let the super know if it didn't go away on its own. I glanced over at Ms. Dubrow's door and noticed that the soup was gone, so I knew she had taken it despite not having responded to my text. I thought about knocking on her door, but it was late and she'd be in bed already. I promised myself that I would check in on her the next day. The problem was I had been staying out later and later with Danny, and I would sleep in until mid or even late afternoon. Then I'd get up and eat, work out, plan my outfit for the night. You know how it goes when you meet someone new, how the days swirl from one to the next. When you spend so much time thinking about them that you slide on regular check-ins with friends. It was something like that, but far more intense. What a thrill this visit was. Danny took me to where we left off the night before. After a pleasant dinner where most of my thoughts drifted back to Danny... I told my date I wanted to call it an early night. I saw him to the door, and once he was gone, I plopped down on the couch and pulled my phone out of my pocket. I skimmed my contacts list until I got to Danny. Then I stared at his number. Should I, or shouldn't I? I went through all the calculations one goes through in my position. He had someone new. Would calling him be desperate? Danny had made his decision. I would be selfish not to respect his wishes. But he could have pretended not to see me and ducked out of the market. I gave him that opportunity. Instead, he walked right up to me. The look in his eyes, the fondness, the yearning, they were all things he wanted me to see. When the text hit my phone, I nearly threw it across the room from the surprise. Look out the window, it said. I almost knocked over a side table running to the window that faced out onto the street below. I pulled it open and a rush of brisk night air blew my hair back. Danny was outside, leaning against his car. My phone chimed again. Can I come up? I stuck my head out the window and shouted, Yes! I waited for what felt like far longer than the trip upstairs should have taken. For some reason, I stood by the window waiting anxiously instead of just waiting for him at the door. I think I wanted to open the door for him, like some sort of welcome ceremony. 
He announced himself with three solid knocks. I opened the door. At first, our faces were a void. We both watched the other expectantly, wondering who would be the first to break the silence. I tilted my head ever so slightly, and with that small adjustment, a somber note played. Our faces grew sad in the way only we knew how to recognize in each other. Danny, I... I didn't know what to say. I had told him sorry a thousand times. He leaned in close, not for a kiss yet, but it was a comfort just being so close. Danny let out a sigh and leaned his forehead onto mine. With his sigh, I felt a relief wash over us. He didn't say it, but I knew exactly what that sigh meant. What the hell are we doing here, Slim? We were so close. His face was almost a blur, but I felt him grin. And I grinned. It was mischievous. It was rueful. It was flirtatious. It said everything. Slim? He asked formally with a hint of jest. Danny? I replied, mirroring his tone. His cheek gently grazed mine and he whispered to me, I don't want to do this anymore. Then come home. Marry me. I whispered back. He stepped forward and wrapped his arms around me as we staggered past the threshold together. I'm so sorry. Forgive me, I begged. There's nothing to be sorry for. Then we became a mix of skin and hair and tangled clothes on the living room sofa. We never even got to fully shutting the front door. The next two nights I visited the bridge. Danny showed me how we spent the rest of that weekend in bed. And after that, how we had seamlessly intertwined into each other's lives as if no time had passed. Maybe Danny was right. Maybe we needed that time apart to solidify how much we needed each other. Each day I returned home, renewed. It was like falling in love all over again. I could barely contain a stupid smile wherever I went. I kept my promise to him by eating at least two meals a day and calling my mother and sister regularly. I even went shopping for a new outfit. I slept during the morning and early afternoon so I could have nights with him, now living my days in reverse. It was on the seventh night. I noticed the hallway odor growing stronger. I assumed someone else would call the super, but it did seem most pungent on my floor where there were four apartments, one being vacant and the other was someone who was always out of town for work. It was on the eighth day I strolled home blissfully as the sun peeked over the row of buildings on my street. I swung my arms and legs in a joyful stride, a broad smile stretched across my face as I stepped into the building. I hadn't checked my mail in a few days, so I walked over to the end of the lobby where there was a row of mailboxes, all connected to each other. 
Mine was just beside Ms. Dubrow's. Each box had a tiny window, and I noticed that Ms. Dubrow's mailbox, ever the fastidious type that she was, was jammed to the hilt, so that the bent paper pushed up against the little window like prisoners trying to escape a crowded jail cell. I felt a jolt in my gut. Shit, I murmured. I had forgotten to text her. How many days had it been since I had last seen her? Five? Six? Seven? I was so tired. All I wanted to do was crawl into my bed and dream about what the night would bring. I glanced at my phone. It wasn't even six in the morning. But I promised myself I would not sleep until I checked in on her. I slid my key into my mailbox and inside were a couple of large envelopes. I yanked them out and as soon as I saw the sender on each, knew what they were. The autopsy and police report I have requested. I stood there motionless, staring at the unopened mail in my hands. When I had ordered this, I was in an entirely different place, consumed with grief and exhaustion from trying to live in a world that had died. Things had changed so fast since then. I had been injected with a potent dose of hope and life. I had Danny back and the morbid appeal of sitting alone with a cup of tea, reading about his death, no longer brought me the morose satisfaction I needed. Just then, the booming echo of a neighbor's boot stomping down the stairwell nudged me out of my stupor. Hey, you live on the fourth floor, right? He asked. I looked up from the envelopes at the guy. I had seen him in passing a few times. He had always worn the same olive beanie with a black stripe and navy peacoat. But other than Ms. Dubrow, I didn't interact with many neighbors. Uh, yeah. I'm on the third. Are, are you getting a weird odor up there? I woke up this morning and I, I can't tell where it's coming from. Odor? I asked. My mind still on the contents of the envelope in my hands. Oh yeah, there was something funky. I, I thought maybe a rodent died? Actually, I'm just getting home, so... I shrugged. The neighbor also shrugged and, on his way, made some comment about how he was going to call the super, another task I had put on the back burner, for which I had thanked him. I trudged up the staircase, staring down at the unopened envelopes in my hand, wondering if I should read the contents and learn what Danny went through, or if I should shove these in the trash and continue to look forward. After all, his death was no longer relevant. He was here with me now, and we were living the life we were destined to have. As I approached the third floor, the odor that had been more of a nuisance to me on the fourth floor had worked its way down and was distractingly strong. It didn't smell like the purely sickly sweet smell of rotted trash. It was musky, heavy. I had smelled it on a smaller scale before, and as my nose conferred with my brain, I flashed back to the mailbox. Ms. Dubrow always checked her mail. The smell. Oh no. It was like I had been trapped in a heady fog for the past week, and in a moment of clarity, it all clicked. Just like that, the contents of my hands were no longer the most important thing at the moment. I ran toward her door and knocked, first firmly, but not hard enough to scare Ms. Dubrow if she was asleep. I heard nothing and tried a little harder, 
then a little harder still until I was pounding. I entered my apartment, throwing the stuff in my hands on the entry table, then ran into my kitchen. I left each drawer askew and their contents overturned as I searched for the spare key to Ms. Dubrow's apartment I used whenever dog-sitting Robert. Finally, I found the single key hanging off of a piece of neon pink foam with a number for a local insurance agency stamped on it. I hurried over to Ms. Dubrow's door, my nose tucked into the collar of my shirt. It was a useless shield against the odor that grew stronger with each step forward. I tried to remain hopeful, but the sick feeling in my gut wasn't just a reaction to the stench. When I pulled the door open, the hot, sweet, musky, putrid, acidic smell of death and vomit engulfed me. <laughs>